KPBS On Demand is supported by the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego with Gabriel Rico's Unity and Variety, neon, taxidermy, and augmented reality sculptures from locally sourced objects transform the galleries. Open September 24th in Balboa Park, icasandiego.org. From Sose We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming the series that features true stories from the lives of America's military told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. We've chosen to title today's show with our tongues lodged firmly in our cheeks, The Undesirables. Not as a reflection on our guests, we desire to have them on this show very much, but rather because both of them have subject matter in their stories that talks very plainly about having identity issues that were, at least at the time, perceived as incompatible with military service. Anthony Mole, who served during Don't Ask, Don't Tell as a gay man, and Elizabeth Pryfogel, who wrestled with mental health issues that she felt she had to keep hidden lest it impact her career as an officer in the Marine Corps. We're going to start off our show with Anthony Mole, a lecturer now at the University of Baltimore and formerly of the U.S. Army's Police Canine Section, among other assignments. One of those other assignments included serving as a trainer for the military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, which I have to interpret as somewhat of a loaded, fraught, maybe subversive kind of a joke. It certainly made me laugh because Anthony identifies as queer and has before he even joined the army. And so with that unique perspective, we're going to let Anthony tell you the rest. The former service members on stage are at the end of a tour of duty in which they have acted as the face of a law that said those who love members of the same sex were unfit to serve openly in the military. The president, smiling, signs a paper on the desk, and a bill is transformed into law. They call it a repeal. We call it a wrong made right. He signs it with two boxes full of pens, a strange standard applied whenever new laws are signed. And when he has finished, he looks out at the crowd, smiling. He slaps his palm down on the table. This is done. In December 2009, I don't come out of the closet. I should say, I don't come back out of the closet. I was out at 16, but the aforementioned law pushed me back into eight years of a strange sort of bullshitting. Even though many people seemed to assume that I was queer, I wasn't allowed to say it, or to hold hands, or to go on dates anywhere near bases where I was stationed or to visit the barracks room of other queer soldiers without the heart-thudding fear of being burst in on. I don't come back out for two more months, despite being hired by the biggest gay and lesbian nonprofit in the country. I'm on separation leave, leave time spent at the end of my contract for the sake of making my last day of work arrive a few weeks earlier. This means that although I'm out of the army, I'm still, technically, in the army on paper. For a few weeks after I take off the uniform, something keeps me in, keeps me silent. I've yet to escape a sense of duty about the Army, a sense of what I should and shouldn't stand for as a representation of the modern soldier. It's also fear that keeps me in. Irrational fear, really. Fear that I'll lose my veterans' benefits. Fear that I'll be pulled back in. Fear related to years of listening to my peers and bosses talk about how they'd kick a soldier's ass or worse, if they knew he was gay. I've yet to repair the injury caused by being fearful for years that I would, at best, be asked to leave, that I would be told that I don't belong. In December 2010, only a few people in my office know that I date women, 
I've been seeing the same woman for a few years now, but here in this gay office in DC, everyone assumes that I mean boyfriend or husband when I say partner. When I came back out earlier this year, I did so in the most theatrical of ways. Although it's hard to call it coming out, no one suspected I was straight at that point. The day I formally got out of the military, the day the ink dried, the day any real risk in doing so disappeared, gay blogs across the country shared a letter that I wrote to the president calling for an end to the law called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. In the letter, I come out as bisexual again, and I brag about my silent service. To be honest, at this point I identify as pansexual, something akin to bisexual, but rejecting the concept that gender and sex are binary and uniform concepts. Because the letter is a rhetorical act, a marketing ploy aimed at right-leaning audiences, I keep it simple. Even in my re-emergence, I act cautiously. I am limited. In December 2009, before I go, I'm not exactly passing for heterosexual. In uniform, I am not a towering presence. I have a slight lisp and overly groomed eyebrows. I often forgo the required beret in my uniform because I don't want to mess up my hair. I don't hide that I've got a gay job lined up in DC. In this hyper-masculine, heteronormative culture, I stand out. I'm also the non-commissioned officer assigned to lecture my unit on the regulations regarding sexual harassment, equal opportunity, and the current policy restricting open service for gay and lesbian troops in the military. This isn't punishment or an inappropriate joke on the part of my bosses. I volunteered for this position. The last presentation I gave on these subjects wasn't much different from the rest. A few dozen troops in their uniforms packed into a classroom as I flipped through a slideshow presentation. The goal of the Army's equal opportunity policy is to ensure fair treatment of all soldiers. I tell them again, the same mandatory message they heard last quarter and the quarter before. When the part on don't ask, don't tell comes up, I feel the room get quieter. I feel as a stillness on my skin, as if these were warriors were holding their breath. Or not. The truth is, very few soldiers really gave much consideration to the rule. Even in this conservative culture, most of the people who have to work every day don't seem to care anymore. It's a non-issue nowadays. It is as likely as not that any tension in the air during these sessions was imagined by a soldier with a lot on his shoulders. There's no constitutional right to serve in the armed forces, I tell them, reading from my slide. The presence in the armed forces of persons who demonstrate a propensity or intent to engage in homosexual acts would create an unacceptable risk to the high standards of morale, good order and discipline, and unit cohesion that are the essence of military capability. I don't mind saying it. It's not masochism. It's relief of pressure. The chance to talk about it. The chance to speak, however bent. In December 2010, I am still keeping my hair short on the sides although now I grow it into a wide, mohawk-type mess on the top. I'm wearing dress shirts and ties for the first time in my life. Now, because this is a trendy, modern office, trendy for DC at least, I'm not in a suit. Jeans and button-ups aren't out of place here. On Fridays, when it gets casual, I wear a t-shirt, which shows a collection of tattoos I amassed while serving. Short sleeves in the office bring about another first, being considered butch. So you got all your tattoos when you were in the army? A member of the field team, the attractive guys and gals who go out and get petitions signed, asked me as he leans onto my desk and lifts the sleeves of my shirt. I love guys with tattoos. 
he says as he smiles before strutting away. Here in this culture, where everyone is assumed gay first, my tattoos, my novice sense of style, and my history in the military present me as almost a tough guy, a little bit butch, probably a top. In December 2009, I am a superhero. When soldiers tell people, at least people who live on and around military bases, that they train dogs for the army, there are only a few responses that they get. That's so cool, wow. How'd you get into that? So you get to play with dogs every day? When we're hanging out in our office with our dogs kenneled nearby, barking to each other, canine handlers pretend to complain, pretend we're tired of this routine. We haven't. We love when the vest with canine printed at the back that we wear over our fatigues. We love parking anywhere we please and keeping the oversized SUVs running because we have to keep our eyes on the dogs. We love wrapping our leashes around our shoulders or letting them hang off our belts so everyone can see. We like silently encouraging people to ask. It's the attention. It's the fact that we're being zipped around the world to search for bombs. The fact that we're rubbing elbows with Secret Service and NYC. This feels like rock star status. It's among the reason that so few handlers are in a rush to leave the military. What is it that you're gonna do when you get out? The first sergeant asked most soldiers to scare them from leaving. In December 2010, I'm a lackey. My boss is significantly more butch than I am. No, not butch. He wears polo shirts tight enough to cling to his chest and arms. Aggressive. From my cubicle outside of his office, I watch as my coworkers leave conversations with him muttering under their breath, almost crying sometimes. He doesn't budge, he gets his way. Listen, my friend. One can tell he has a distaste for someone when he calls them friend. That just isn't gonna happen. My job, the job I left the army for, job for which I went to school at night while serving in canine units across the globe, is to keep him happy. Expense reports, travel arrangements, find him a place that ships suits, call him a taxi. Anthony, he calls from his desk, not bothering to stand. How about a cupcake run? Cupcakes for the whole office. He buys, and I walk down to the boutique bakery to pick up our treats. And here's the thing. As much as this sounds like whining, I wear a genuine smile as I stand in the brightly lit bakery in DuPont Circle, the historically gay district of the city. I wear tight slacks and a shirt pinned closely with a skinny tie and balance several bright boxes of $3 a piece cupcakes to hand out to an office full of happy queer professionals. In December 2009, I say canine, I say SSD, SSG, LPOP, QRF. We say FOB, even FOBIT, KPOT, CAB, 550 cord, 9 mil, downrange, Frago, EXO, BOLO, IED, CBRN or NBC, RPG, Sham Shield, Stripes, NCOIC, MWR, MRE, DFAC, FTX, PX, M249, Get Some, Get Some. In December 2010, I say sexual orientation. I say LGBT. Try LGBTIQQAA2S. I say HRC, NCTE, NCLR, HIV AIDS, Whitman Walker, Kinsey Butler, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, gender nonconforming, 
Second Parent Adoption, Medical Power of Attorney, Civil Union, SSM, MSM, GLAD and Single D GLAD, NCOD, ENDA, DADT, DOMA, Repeal, Repeal. In December 2009, Staff Sergeant Beryl, the married straight soldier who presents the Equal Opportunity Lectures with me, stands with me in uniform in the hall of my unit headquarters before I walk out the door for the last time. Without any hush in his voice, he asks me the most personal question he is permitted to ask me. Do you think they'll repeal it in your lifetime? My lifetime? Of course, two or three more years tops. I'm not so sure. There are plenty of old crusty types who are going to bitch about it. I nod. Yeah, but it's not them who get to decide. This is going down. We've got a Democrat in the big house and a campaign promise. He lets a smirk creep out. Not a mischievous one. Not exactly. It's something closer to the smile of someone getting away with something. A whispered ask. I was half hoping it would be repealed before you went. I blush. Despite his benign intent, despite my re-emerging pride, I feel as though I am being accused of something. This should be the moment in which I come out, at least to a soldier I trust, when the stakes are low. I don't. In December 2010, I'm in the meeting space on the first floor of a building where I work in DC. The space is all glassy and milky white surfaces, floor to ceiling windows, plenty of light. Today there are rows of chairs and a projection screen set up for those of us who aren't down the street watching firsthand the president sign this bill into law. I've been missy-eyed all day. I could barely keep it together on the subway train in, so I know that I might lose it when the live stream starts. I sit in the back with my cup of coffee. My legs cross as I lean forward at the edge of my seat. I've got a lot on my to-do list today. Expense reports, blog posts, and celebratory cupcake run, no doubt. Still, today they will cut me some slack. As the stream begins, we watch as the camera scans the crowd. The gay congressman is there. There's the Arabic linguist who the army asked to leave, and the pilot kicked out just before retirement. There's Eric, who lost his leg during the first push into Iraq. Hey, Anthony, a blonde coworker with a sweet face and kind eyes, sits down beside me in a t-shirt that reads, Repeal the Ban. Didn't you used to be in the military? Yeah, I tell him. Used to. I smile with some resignation, keeping my eyes on the screen as they well up. I smile with a small amount of embarrassment, with a small amount of pride. As the morning sun slips in through the window behind my seat, I smile, out of uniform. Thank you, thank you, the president begins. Today is a good day. Let's start at the very beginning. Would you mind telling us about what your impetus was for joining up in the first place? It was a combination of things, is what I've always said. Um, I think I'm still, you know, um, still trying to figure it out exactly uh, everything that that cued me to join but in large part it was two things it was like a lot of service members it was september 11 a lot of people throughout the country just felt like they had to do something at that time i was sort of just a working class loser and i wasn't going to college i definitely felt that need to do something both with my life and in response to the attacks and so for me it was a combination of finding a way out of poverty along with that feeling that a lot of people felt after the attacks and so when a recruiter called me i was sort of 
primed to say yes. Uh, he called me early February, and I think within 17, 18 days, I was in Missouri in basic training. When did you identify as a pansexual individual or, or anything other than a straight man? So at about 16, I came out to, to most of my friends and family as bisexual. So I was out before I joined the military. And then at 18, when I joined, I don't know, I had this sense that it wouldn't be a big deal, that I could, you know, date on the evenings and weekends and just not say anything about it and that that would be fine. And that, that wasn't the case. You know, some soldiers report that it, it, it was that for them, but that was not the case for me. Can you t- talk to me about why that was? Why you felt all of a sudden that it was a bigger deal than you anticipated? Sure. Uh, one of the things that Don't Ask, Don't Tell created was this culture of heteronormativity. So they'll, they'll say things about uh, LGBT people, um, assuming that everyone in the room around them is straight. So they'll say things about repeal and why it won't work and how gays aren't fit to serve and gay men in particular couldn't handle the army and sort of ignoring the fact that, you know, obviously there there are gay, bi, and pansexual men already serving during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's, that was a big, that was a rhetoric during repeal was that this isn't letting queer people serve in the military. This is letting them stop lying about the fact that they've been serving in the military. And so that, that culture of heteronormativity just had a silencing effect where you don't know who you can trust, you don't know what you can say. And so for me, it was just adhering to the letter of the law. I was as out as I could be. You know, I was going to pride events. Um, I was speaking openly about, like, my support of LGBT rights, but I wasn't out. Like, I never said the words to anybody except for the men that I dated in the military um, that I was gay or bi or queer or pansexual. One of the refrains my friends and I have is is that refrain that comes from getting older, which is like kids today don't know. <laughs> you know, they gr- the kids right. who grew up with Glee <laughs> will never know what it was right. like. Do you worry that that story will get lost of what it was like to serve with those dual pressures of duty and you know feeling like a deviant within your within your own military? Right. I'm I'm of two minds here. I think. One part of me, like, that's the reason I'm writing, right? I want to document that this existed. These feelings and navigating the military in this way existed for many people for a long time. The other part of me wants it to be a non-issue, you know? I just want it to be a non-issue. I want people, young people in the future to be like, I don't get what the big deal was, you know? I don't understand why this mattered, right? right. Let it to be just full equality all the time and the idea of exclusion being a thing of the past. The other side of that question is, do you feel like you have educating to do with civilians about the nature of the military? You know, I mean, as you touch on in in your piece, there's this whole, like, I can't believe you were in the military (laughs) reaction you get, you know. Do you feel like, talk to me about that part of the reconciliation of expectations. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that I have to navigate this as both just a veteran, but also as a queer veteran. And I have to tell that story of people who don't get what it was to serve under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or who, who don't never understood what it was. But then generally, yeah, the, the defense of, and I don't want to say defense, but the explanation of what the military is and was and what that life is like. And I think that's a lot of what my writing is doing too, is it aims to just, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stories of the military just are war stories. They want to tell about this conflict and, you know, this, this trope of war as hell, um, the tropes of brotherhood. But there's also this really strange, strange culture of, of 
the military and military towns and military bases. And it's something that that doesn't really get shared. You know, maybe, maybe we have some, like, army wives and stuff like that attempting to tell those stories, but it's this strange culture that the, the mainstream society doesn't really have access to, explaining that and what it's like and how that intersects with the story of why I could not be out, right, or being as out as I could be. For me, being closed in the military, when I got out, had the opposite effect. So in part, that was that I was serving the biggest LGBT rights organization in the country. But in part, it was just finally being free from that. I wear it on my sleeve now. And it was very quick for me to really proudly say, you know, I'm a queer man and I'm a queer man who served in the military. And here's what you need to know about that. And so, yeah, you know, I think when you're stifled for eight years and you're told, you know, your job's at risk if you say anything, when that disappears, um, you sort of go wild. In the photo, you can barely tell which is which. One of us is squatting down atop a Humvee, pretending to point toward the horizon somewhere over your left shoulder. The other figure leans into the first, half emerged from the gunner's hole in the roof of the truck, gazing toward the same vista. Both figures are clad in camouflage uniforms, both topped by turtle-shaped helmets. K-pots, we call them. And we call what we are wearing full battle rattle, Helmets, armored vest, and a mesh ammo vest over that. Black gloves, black boots, olive drab gas mask attached in a carrier. We're wearing bright green, cash green safety glasses. I found them in a dust-covered box in the back of our storage connex a week prior and passed them out to the other gunners in my squad. We started calling ourselves the cash money gunners. This doesn't mean anything really, not to us. Cash money is just something we heard on the radio. The truck, wide and squat, wears the same pattern as we do. It holds the earth between the tread of its front tires, also pointed toward you. The windshield looks water-stained and dusty. Beside the figure half-concealed in the truck, a gun is mounted and centered on the roof. You might miss that it is a gun. Maybe to you it's just an odd metallic attachment to the truck, an antenna perhaps. You might miss that the perfect black circle near the top of the object is a barrel pointed your way. It's a grenade launcher, Mark 19. To us, it's used to hurl up to 375 40 millimeter grenades outward toward whoever we're told. It's easy to miss that Danielle is the one next to the gun. You can't tell, but she has silky brunette hair that she hides under a brown rag beneath her K-pot. The bottom half of our faces below the glasses is the only flesh exposed in the photo. You can almost tell that we're smudged with dirt here. Danielle doesn't mind. She loves to smother her clear skin with camo whenever we're out at training events like this anyway. My hair, under the helmet, is cut and high and tight, a rectangle of uniform fuzz atop an otherwise closely shaven head. You can't see any of this though. Can't tell that she's a woman. Can't tell that we're both queer. You can't tell one of us from the other. It's all blurred by the uniform. Features, gender, personality, history. The purpose of camouflage isn't to make a person disappear, but to break up the silhouette that makes the figure recognizable as a person. Look closer, squint. When you get to the details, 
that's when the illusion begins to unravel. The green metal box attached to the gun is hollow, offering only empty space where a can of ammunition should be. There's no driver in the driver's seat. There's no one in the truck at all. The figures in uniform were just 19-year-old kids, fresh from working-class homes. If you look closely enough, you might see a smirk. We're safe, playing. We don't yet know about America's longest war, still hot, fresh, and 3,000 miles away from us here. We don't yet know about loss. When you squint, you see that we're too young, too, not even old enough to drink. It's hard to tell because of how we're dressed, because we're dressed in the uniform of aggressors, because you're staring down the barrel of a gun. Think of how many shots like this one exist. Baby-faced soldiers posed alongside the instruments of war. It's almost always when we're young, isn't it? Photos from our first tour, photos from basic training, before the newness of the experience wears off, when we are still full of pride, proud to be on our own, away from working class homes, fighting for something we think we believe in. We're excited about new challenges, excited about new toys, excited to be soldiers, something different than before, anything but kids from Reno, kids from Gary. Do you feel any solidarity between the movement to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell and fully openly integrate gay service members in with what's going on right now with the struggle to integrate women more into combat roles and frontline positions? The narrative now that the mainstream media is attempting to paint is that women will finally serve in combat. But I, yeah, I think like like you mentioned, I think the story is that fine, women will finally be recognized for serving in combat and they'll ha- finally have full access to the jobs they want to have in the military. And you know, I think I think there's a solidarity just from being told no, right, to having policies that stood against you and seeing policies that stand against other people and having a solidarity there. So it's true particularly of, of women in roles, in combat roles. But it's also true for me, you know, I think a lot of people saw Don't Ask, Don't Tell as the end of the fight. And uh, organizations like the Military Partner Organization and Service Members Legal Defense Network, they're continuing the fight because transgender Americans are still kept from serving openly in the military. In the last few months, we've got some traction that that that's finally being repealed. Yeah, I've seen backward solidarity, too, among LGB service members, among trans service members and trans Americans who want to serve, and among women who, who have served and who will serve and who are serving. What advice would you give to a self identified queer person who t- came and talked to you about wanting to join the military now? It's a good question. That's a really tough one for me. It always is. Um, for any person who wants to join the military, I don't know that I believe in what the U.S. military is, has been asked to do over the last 20 years. And so I don't know that I, that I believe in, in that service being unstained. Anthony Mall, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Elizabeth Pryfogel knows herself by a couple different names. Libby is the name she's given to the softer parts of herself that she's worried she's lost in Iraq. The Marine Corps' Captain Pryfogel was this perpetual motion machine of physical exertion that would run miles every day along her base's landing strip, martial arts training for hours on end, and then working the rest of the day until she was so tired she could finally fall asleep without having to think too much. 
Nowadays, now that she's back with all the time in the world for her brain to do what brains tend to do, Elizabeth has returned to the writing that she pursued before joining the Marine Corps. And I find her exceptionally skilled at articulating the disaffection and anger many veterans I know feel towards the civilian world they come home to in a way that's unapologetically honest and vulnerable and also puts herself on the line. But let's see what you think. Visiting us here in San Diego at our KPBS studio all the way from Louisiana, here's Elizabeth Pryfogel. Therapy, San Diego, California, June 2013. I accidentally started therapy a year ago. Let's talk about grieving, my therapist says from across the room. I smile, a trick I learned as a shy child. Being a 30-year-old combat vet in therapy hasn't changed my best line of defense. In fact, it's made it more convincing. It's no longer an innocent kid hiding behind a sweet smile, but a woman who is disarmingly quiet with a thousand-yard stare all masked by a practice response. Unfortunately, this doesn't work on my therapist the way it does strangers in dim-lit bars. I thought she was a vocational counselor when I met her at the mandatory individual ready reserve muster two years after I left active duty. The following week, when I walked into her office and saw the fake plants and heard the soft sounds of crashing waves from a hidden stereo, I realized she wasn't going to help me with my resume. As I stare and smile, shadows from the late afternoon sun pass through the soft, iridescent curtains into the sterile room. She's added plants and soft lighting, but it's still a government-owned facility. She waits for a response to regain control of the conversation. I wait until she looks down at her notes trying to figure out a different way to ask me the same question. I went to memorial service when a Marine officer was killed in Iraq. I blurred out, like a child running through her day's events at the supper table. I didn't know him. I leave out that I pretended to be an investigative journalist to pass the time during the quiet deployment. I even kept a blog about life in a war zone for a handful of followers who stumbled upon the page. But the most interesting subject I was allowed to write about was my ongoing obsession with running. I don't tell her that I took a massive digital SLR camera to the memorial service to play this pretend role and capture the site of war. I hold on to my secret. I didn't feel grief, but such shame that I left as they sang the last hymns and said the last prayers. I had never met him, but saw this as an opportunity to run for my pretend Pulitzer Prize. That week, I blogged about the marathon I was training for. She doesn't say anything. A moment passes and she looks down at her notebook again. About a year ago, a captain that I used to hang out with died in Afghanistan. I didn't really know him either, but he was the housemate of an ex-boyfriend. I didn't go to any memorials or anything, but I remember reading about it online. It seems strange that I knew him and now he's just gone. My voice trails off as I watch her entire body relax. This is the most I've ever revealed during a session. That's it, really. My dad's mom passed recently, but I had never met her. All my other grandparents and family that I do know are still living. People always tell me I'm lucky, but it's not luck. They're all going to die someday. Waning isn't lucky. I catch myself rambling and shift my posture to cross my legs and arms. At my first appointment, I actually had a copy of my resume in hand. For the first six months, she helped me navigate the VA disability claim process, not a small feat. Then it was just habit to make my next appointment at the end of the hour. She tells me she's treating me for transition disorder, even though I returned from Iraq more than three years ago. Are there any other relationships that ended that and you had to grieve? Boyfriends or friends? I think of my past relationships. They never lasted long and usually ended in an unspoken mutual agreement. Friendships and boyfriends all come in and out of my life, quiet and quick. I recognize that our roles in one another's lives had been fulfilled. 
I sit and study the mundane government-furnished carpet, forgetting to answer her question. The office buildings on base were covered in the exact same shade of cobalt blue carpet. No? She asks. The fake birds chirp from her CD player, and a little patch of sun hits my bare thighs and draws my attention. I notice goosebumps popping up on my soft skin, like tiny sand dunes emerging on a barren landscape. I scratch at them. When I finally received my disability letter from the VA, we both cheered in her little office. I remember thinking afterwards, what a funny thing to cheer about. My final diagnosis was post-traumatic stress disorder, also claimed as depression and anxiety. Getting the government's recognition was a bittersweet victory, especially considering the hours spent submitting medical documentation and sitting with various doctors reliving the trauma. Well, I want to specifically talk about a loss of oneself. Do you think you are the same person you were before you joined the Marines? No, of course not. I unintentionally roll my eyes. She wants to save me. I can see that she feels like she can save every veteran if given a cape, the ability to fly, and all the time in the world. I respect her for her sincere passion and dedication, but I don't want to be saved. Not like this. Okay, good. Do you like the person you've become? I fight the urge to become hostile. What kind of question is that? I want to snap like an angry teenager. She has never been anything but kind to me. Instead, I simply shrug my shoulders and say, I am who I am. It simply is what it is now. I hate the cliche phrase that has become an answer for everything from the meaning of life to receiving a moldy pastry at a cafe. I hate that while it has become an everyday phrase, it's true. It is what it is. I am who I am now. I don't like who I've become. I don't like the chemicals I was exposed to, the vaccines they injected in my bloodstream, my acceptance of killing another human being in the name of war. War, for an act so big, the word just seems too small. No, I don't like Captain Prifogel, who sits in therapy out of habit. I like Libby, but she's a POW or MIA. The war has long since ended, but I'm still waiting for the body to wash up on shore so I can give her a proper burial. She pauses and lets me reflect for a moment. I let the silence wash over me like a crashing wave on jagged rocks. The cold discomfort of who I've become envelops my skin, seeping into my bones. I catch a glimmer of the emotional being I once was, and a chill runs down my spine. My whole body trembles like I'm having a petite mal seizure as the wave washes Libby back to sea. My stomach burns as sand enters the cracks and crevices of the stone wall Captain Prifogel pretends to be. What she doesn't get is that I need to be the hero of my story, not a damsel in distress needing rescue by a motherly shrink. You need to mourn the person you were, my therapist interjects, ending our staring contest. You can never be that person again, and you need to mourn that loss in order to accept who you have become. She starts reading the names and definitions of the universal stages of grief. Her voice is flat, like I just need to put a check in each box and move on to the next. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. She makes it sound like a simple equation. Giving up 24 years of being Libby plus stages of grief equals moving on. I wonder if this will last forever. Will she just keep making appointments in a sad attempt to rescue me? Will I just keep showing up because of my OCD we haven't discussed yet? You're so much stronger now, she says with a go team go flair. Everyone says this. When I jolt up from nightmares and reach for my pistol, or have a sudden unexplainable panic attack in a crowd. You're so strong now, they tell me like it's a consolation prize. You're so strong, they say, but what they really mean is, you're a Marine, 
I thought you were supposed to be tough and fearless. They always use that word, strong. Yes, I'm stronger now. The Marine Corps made me tough. Strong enough to stifle the emotions that used to make me human. Tough enough to beat out the individuality that made me Libby. Yes, I'm strong. I'm step right up and see the strongest woman in the world strong. But nobody tells you what the cost of this strength is. Nobody tells you that you have to be stronger than who you were so you can kill her. I was tricked. Now I have to mourn the person I was and I didn't even give her a fighting chance. She had strengths too. They were just different. I'm waiting on my therapist to give up on me. I've withdrawn so much that everyone else has given up and moved on. Why can't she? I think about Libby, the girl who dyed her hair purple because she thought it was pretty and brought out her green eyes. The girl who didn't walk through the grocery store but tap danced through the aisles for no other reason than she really liked to tap dance. The girl with so much energy that her dad nicknamed her Tigger. Libby, the girl was brave enough to move to Scotland and then later New York City. Both times she was flat broke, but fearless and faithful. She knew that the universe would provide and she was grateful that it always did. Happy, but physically weak and emotional. I think about Captain Pryfogle, the woman who joined the Marines because her dad told her she wouldn't make it. The woman who learned military tactics and how to give a five paragraph order like she was ordering a meal. The woman who led Marines in a combat zone who shouted kill over and over again until killing another human being wasn't questioned by her instinct for survival of the species. The Marine who runs marathons, lifts weights, has a sculpted body, knows how to kill someone with just her hands and given the right circumstance would execute without a second thought. She appears strong and callous, but is broken and sad. Some days the weight of her decisions and the things she saw are too heavy to carry and she can't get out of bed. On those days, she thinks of the rock biter from the never-ending story. She remembers the scene after the nothing has swept away all of his friends and left him helpless and alone. He looks at his hands and says, they look like big, good, strong hands, don't they? I always thought that's what they were. The nothing has taken Libby, and no matter how resilient Captain Pryfogel appears to be, she's left with nothing but big, lumpy rock hands. But I am strong now. We're not the people we used to be, and we need to accept who we are, my therapist says as a soft acoustic guitar plays over a flowing river in the background. She likes to remind me that she is also a veteran. I like to remind myself that she was in civil affairs instead of trained to kill, she was trained to help. I bite the side of my tongue because the pain occupies my mind and stops me from crying. I don't want to mourn the person I was before the Marine Corps. I knew and liked her. I don't know this person that wakes up every morning at 04.30 and inventories the lines on her face. Who is this person who goes to work in drab collared clothes and does what she's told in order to collect a paycheck? I don't like this woman who can't remember the last time she sat with her sisters and laughed until she snorted or tap danced through the grocery store. Okay, I think we've gone over enough today. When do you want to make your next appointment? My therapist closes her PTSD guidebook and opens her monthly calendar. I take a long, deep breath and let out a sigh of relief. I schedule my next appointment to visit Libby in the cold, dark prison, holding her on an indefinite sentence. She walks me to the front office. I say goodbye to the veteran student workers at the front desk who look younger and younger each month. They all smile too. I drive home breaking the speed limit and swerve in and out of lanes. What I don't say in therapy is that sometimes I wish I had died in combat. I wake up, I go to work, I do what I'm supposed to do, 
and in the quiet of the afternoon, I daydream of a world without me. Who would fill my position at work? Would my boyfriend be dating someone else? How would my life be memorialized on Veterans Day in my small Indiana hometown? I dream of a world where I died as a hero, a world where my life had purpose. I dream about how others would grieve me, not the woman I've become, but the girl they knew. The girl who didn't train her mind to kill in the name of war. The girl who laughed, explored, and wrote obsessively in her journals. If I die now, I'll be a blurb in the San Diego Union Tribune and the lives of those around me. Of course, I'm not waiting on my therapist to give up on me. I'm waiting for Captain Prifogel to give up on Libby. Why won't she accept that Libby is never leaving the internment camp holding her? I make it home safe in spite of myself. I open up a journal I haven't touched in months. I write the date and time and scribble out my answer. I can't grieve the person I was because she's still out there. Everyone else has moved on, so it's up to me to find her. The following month, I forget to go to my appointment. My therapist never calls to reschedule. The first question I like to ask everybody is, tell me about the decision to join the Corps. You mentioned it briefly, that it was a way to prove your father that you could do it. Expound on that for me. I was a really hard time in life. I had gotten back from New York. I'd, after college, my whole life, all I wanted to do was move to New York City and be a writer. And so I did that. And after sleeping on couches and floors, I decided that that's not what I wanted to do anymore. And then when I came home, I'm in the middle of five kids. It was very bad transition. I didn't have a car. My parents live out in the middle of cornfields. I rode my bike 15 miles into town for a job interview and ended up getting hit by a van. And so after all of this, I got in a fight with my dad who told me that I was worthless and I, sh I should join the military, but they wouldn't take someone as worthless as me, which is completely not my dad. Like we're really, really close. So when he said that, it just triggered this instinct in me. I went up straight upstairs um, had to log on to the internet using dial-up still, um, entered in the Google search, just went Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, and just entered my information. And that was just kind of, the Marine Corps was the one that kept calling me back, even though I was ignoring their phone calls, and I just followed it through. After I initially met the recruiter, it took a full year to actually go to officer candidate school. And yeah, there were many times I would start to doubt myself, but it was more of a I can't do this. I'm never going to make it. So it doesn't matter because unlike enlisting officer candidate school, you can quit or you can get dropped or you can break. There were 59 women who started in our platoon, 28 of them graduated. And the whole time that I was at OCS, I was like, I'm never, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I'm just going to, eventually somebody will see that I can't do this and I'll be dropped. And I just kept making it through each step of the way. For a long time, I wanted to, more than anything, I wanted to go to infantry officer school, which at the time, seven, eight years ago, um, I guess longer than that, I guess 10 years ago, that was not an option. Now women actually, they are taking volunteers. And so that was a driving force though, was I'm a woman and I, I want to do this. Back in the cornfields of Indiana, tell me about what were you reading? What were the, the books that got you into writing? I was always the student who never read what I was supposed to be reading in class. I remember in college, I picked up a copy of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. I remember reading it in my computer science class, and that was like my favorite book. 
but never had to read it for an English class. And if you told me to read it, I wouldn't have read it. I remember reading The Things They Carried was a big one on just his style and voice and, and his thoughts on the military and his philosophies. Tell me about how it played a role after the enlistment process. Every day, I kept, like, when I was struggling mentally to get through it, I just told myself every day, like, this is an experience. You're only going to have this experience this day today, and you can write about it later. And I, would, I kept journals all through the process, even though I don't read them. As the harder it got, I just kept telling myself, this is an experience that I can write about. I can write about. You can use this to, for your writing. And so I just kind of created... In my mind, there was the Marine, and then there was the writer, and I just kind of separated the two and then just kept pushing forward with my potential career in the military. Do you remember when the idea of leaving the military or coming home began to produce anxiety rather than the rather than a sense of comfort? The whole deployment, we had a countdown. Every day you were counting down to the next. And, and kind of OCS, you had a countdown until graduation. And then so throughout my entire military career, there was this countdown and I remember when I arrived back in San Diego, I didn't have any family. I had a couple friends that met me at the at base, um, but it wasn't until I drove back into my old neighborhood and went into this went to the old sod, our local watering hole, and I realized that this was not. I was never going to be the same person I was, and it was kind of that moment when I was like, "Wow, this is this is going to be hard," and so. The whole deployment, I was looking forward to that moment. And then you walk into the bar and you're like, wow, this is not who I am. And how am I going to adjust? And that's when the anxiety really just struck me all at once. I think that there's this expectation that veterans should talk about their experiences. I know I do it to my grandparents. You know, like, oh, grandpa, if you want to talk about it. But writing is a way that veterans can really express the emotions and the experiences without directly talking to someone. And so I think that's an extremely helpful tool. But there's this expectation that, oh, I'm a stranger, I don't know you, but here, let me let me ask you these really personal questions about an experience that's just completely unworldly, and I expect you to be completely comfortable and personal and tell me all of these things that yeah, you, you really have no business telling a stranger. Um, and I think the expectation that by talking about it, you'll get over your PTSD is probably the most infuriating thing that civilians try to push. comes from a good place, but it's... It does. Misguided. And I try to remind myself that. What was the process like of forgiving civilians? That one, it just time. It took a lot of time. Um, coming back, seeing children who, I remember this little girl who, gorgeous, until she smiled. All of her teeth were rotted out. Her mom was, her dad had been killed. Her mom, I don't even think she had a mom, complete orphan. She wasn't allowed to go to school. She was probably seven years old. And then to come back and hear people talk about their problems here in America, and it's like, you have you have no idea, and I think it just took time to kind of reassimilate. Okay, this is what life is here, and we're grateful. But you know, if you haven't experienced seeing someone without, you really have nothing to compare it to, and that's not that's not their fault. That's just their experiences. I think it just takes time to get reacquainted with this world. You're so good about writing about being angry. Now that you've been back a little while and you've had time to think about it, do you have kind of a, a an acute sense of what it was directed at or is directed at? I think most of the anger was, and I didn't know how to express it at the time, was at, at the system, the Marine Corps, the government, for putting us in that situation to begin with. And you have no way to express that. This The whole system's broken, so it just comes out at, innocent bystanders asking you, oh, you know, how was how was your experience? Let me try to come up with, you know, a, a conversation where I can relate to you. And it's just all this anger would come out. And it wasn't 
their fault, but um, just mad at the fact that I, at the fact that we were there, that I was there, and then mad at myself that I put myself in that situation to begin with. Um, I think a lot of the anger was for that, a lot of it towards myself. Talk to me about running. In college, I would run. I would get up at 6 a.m. before any of my classes. I would run 7, 8, 10 miles someday. I, I mean, when I say obsessed, I was obsessed. In Iraq, Iran, anywhere from 7 to 20 miles a day. Um, and it was out there. It was the only time that I really felt comfortable, A, being myself, and then B, being alone. Because everywhere I went on base, somebody was watching. Somebody was taking note of who I was with, who I was talking to, just because I was a woman and I'm taller and stand out more than other women. Um, so I would go running on base and I didn't have a weapon. I didn't have any protective gear at all. I would pass by, there were Ugandan guards that guarded the gates to and from the flight line. And every morning I'd pass by and be like, Jumbo, and they were the nicest people in the world. But at the same time, every morning I would look at them and be like, there they are with an AK, a loaded AK-47. And here I am in shorts and a tank top but it's okay. I think it was kind of my way of daring fate. Like, mm -hmm. if something's going to happen, if somebody's going to bomb this base, let it be now. I'm not protected, and I'll show them. I don't know who I was going to show and what I was showing them, but um, just kind of my way of taking control of the situation that I had no control over. I had to be very—I had was one of three women in my unit, and the other two women I didn't work with. One outranked me, so we couldn't really be friends, so to speak. So I was— just out there by myself. I mean, I had my my female staff sergeant. I had my Marines that I was, we all worked together and we knew each other very well, but really didn't have anybody I could talk to or confide in or even be friends with because the rumors would be, oh, you're a female, <laughs> he's a male. Obviously something's going on. To America, September 2008, San Diego, California. How was it? People ask, smiling. They talk to me as if they are connected to the war in Iraq connected to the service that they were too lazy, too undisciplined, too political, too whatever to join themselves. Hot and sandy, I answer, refusing to feed their idea of glorified war, already reinforced daily by MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, and more. Oh, they reply, the smile fading from their face when I give them a cold stare to make them wonder if I killed any hajis, ragheads, camel jockeys, or any of the other offensive terms we are taught to call the people we are at war with in order to dehumanize them until they become our enemy. Are you going to have to go back? They ask with a dramatic sympathy. It's as if I'm awaiting orders for either parole or execution. They never consider that we don't mind going, that this is our job, our choice, what we do to pay our bills, feed our kids, pay off expensive college loans. Civilians don't understand that we are Marines. We don't need pity when we deploy. It's what we are trained to do we volunteer to do. I don't know. It depends on what unit I'm with after I PCS, or if I can get attached to a team on an IA billet. I throw out as many terms and acronyms as I can to boggle their civilian brains. Again, a blank stare. I don't explain that PCS means permanent change of duty station, or that IA billet means individual augment. Both mean you're assigned to a different unit, mission, people, maybe even a different war. Do you want to go back? They ask, ignoring my acronyms. I wouldn't mind going to Afghanistan, I answer out of habit. I have learned that the crazier I make myself appear, the fewer inappropriate personal questions they ask. They change the subject when they realize they can't empathize with my response. Instead, they focus on simple things, like the weather. How hot was it? Their relentless curiosity about a world they will never experience should be flattering. 
but instead it makes me sick to my stomach like I'm caught in a sandstorm inhaling too much dust again. The week before we left, we had a barbecue, and at 2000, I mean 8 p.m., it was still 110 degrees outside. It was at least 115 during the day. On our way home, we had to stop in Coit for four days. There it was closer to like 120. I don't tell them it snowed in January. It's not my job to fix their misconceptions. Wow, that's hot, they say in their most enthusiastic voice. I don't remind them that under flak jackets and Kevlar helmets, carrying a day pack, rifle, and a pistol, that it's more than hot. It's unbearable. They ask about the sandstorms, the bombings, the people, but all they know of war are images from television and retold stories from nephews, distant cousins, or someone who knew someone who went over there at some point. Yeah, it's hot, I shrug. I didn't used to be the cynical or this brazen. I don't feel salty or even sad. It's like I no longer live my life and instead watch it through a television screen, waiting for the character that looks like me, sounds like me, but isn't really me, to react to the various situations invisible producers create from an office offset. My friends try to be supportive, but they don't get that the only support I need is to be left alone. They volunteer to help move my stuff out of storage, stuff I don't want anymore, but I tell them I can manage on my own and hire movers with the money I saved up over the deployment. As I unpack, I wonder why I bought this stuff in the first place. Clothes and trinkets that once had meaning, jewelry and coins that I insured for their value, it all seems like a burden to move into my latest temporary living arrangement. I dream of giving everything I own to the homeless man in the corner of my new neighborhood who stands at the intersection and holds a sign every night that reads, Homeless Vet Suffering from PMSD, Post-Marriage Stress Disorder. But his grocery cart is already full. He doesn't have room for my trash too. I roll down my window and give him all my cash and spare change instead. A friend comments that he probably spends it on booze. Good for him, I think, as I roll up my car window without smiling and turn the corner, watching the man count out my spare change in the rearview mirror. He always looks disappointed in my charity of leftovers from the day's expenses. Sometimes he throws the coins at my car and screams expletives. I simply drive on, happy that I'm not the only one having a bad day. It's only been three weeks since I arrived back in the States. I spent six months in a combat zone and what do I have to show for it? A couple more medals and ribbons to pin on my dress blues. Cheap souvenirs from the various haji shops on base that I toss in a box labeled stuff I don't need. Bags under my eyes from insomnia, a headache from another hangover. My friends drag me out so they can brag and tell strangers that I'm a Marine and I was in Iraq. That I was there and now I'm home. Safe, they announce to their captive audience. People thank me, shake my hands and buy a round of drinks. No thanks, I'm good, I say, but another beer and a shot is ordered anyways. The strangers ask, so how was it? With a tone in their voice, like they are good listeners. Like I can finally tell them the truth instead of some patriotic canned answer they've heard so many times before. Like I can confide in them and share the sins I carry alone so as not to burden the loved ones. The bar is loud and they are drunk. And I consider burying my soul, if for nothing else than to get them to leave me alone. It's over. I say as I raise the shot glass of unknown liquor to cheers. To America, I announce, feigning hope. I gulp the alcohol I didn't want. It burns my throat and for a second my numb body tingles. To being home, they add as they slam the small glass on the counter. After an awkward pause, they finally leave to talk to a prettier, friendlier girl at the other end of the bar. And just as an addendum, since recording that episode with Libby, she's since returned to the Louisiana National Guard. 
And with that, that's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Musicians for this episode include Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Nakul Tiramulavala, Sol Jorge Moskal, and Nikolai Kuster. Our outro music is by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is program director. Nate John is web editor. Emily Jankowski is our technical director. And Kurt Conan is our audio engineer. Special thanks to WYPR in Baltimore for helping us to record Anthony Mole for this episode. Funding for Incoming is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Arts Initiative of the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org slash incoming, at incomingradio.org, or at sosayweallonline.com. This is the 10th episode of Incoming. We really hope you've been enjoying what you've heard so far. So by way of a sign-off today, we're just going to give you a brief preview of episodes coming up down the road. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. Roy Scranton, thanks for being on Incoming. I'm the author of the novel War Porn and Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Hi, my name is Matt Young. This is Doug Bradley. I'm a Vietnam veteran. For the Marines at Quezon, music provided release from the uncertainty, isolation, and sometimes stark terror that reached from the front lines to the relatively secure rear areas known as the air-conditioned jungle. Sometimes I'm asked, what was it like in Afghanistan? It was paperwork and PowerPoint slides, car bombs and ice cream, tediousness and grief, pride and camaraderie and guilt, a place I couldn't wait to go home from and one I secretly hoped they'd send me back to. To get used to that, we're just, we're just so many people not doing their jobs and there's no consequence for that whatsoever. And uh, I, just, I just couldn't get, I couldn't handle it. I still can't. It drives me crazy. Like I see inefficiencies everywhere and, I, and it drives me nuts. But now those are jokes. Those turn into jokes, whereas when, before I had comedy, it, it, I would just feel powerless. You want to hit it? It took me a moment to process this ungodly solicitation. I thought he might be joking. I prayed that he was joking. He wasn't joking. I'll drill a hole in it and you can take it into the cooler before it gets cold. What do you say? It wasn't all this horrible, detrimental, like just tragic experience. Like, there was a lot of humor. Like, he told a lot of funny stories. For Christmas that year, my parents gave me a lifetime membership to the VFW, an organization my grandfather and his brothers had been active members of throughout their lifetime. For me, it was just a cheap bar. Under the strip club, black lights, our teeth glow like demons, and we become a spectacle. Get to the poignancy, Scranton. Right. (laughs) That's great. Cool. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego with Gabriel Rico's Unity and Variety, neon, taxidermy, and augmented reality sculptures from locally sourced objects transform the galleries. Open September 24th in Balboa Park, icasandiego.org.